if you're just visiting us, uh, haven't been with us for a while, we've been uh, going through 1 Peter, we're in chapter 5, we're going to be dealing with verses 5 and 6. Uh, I'm going to read 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 to 6, just so we can get uh, the context here. So 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So, in light of all this that I've been saying about suffering, right, Peter's been talking about suffering, right, suffering for the name of Jesus, suffering as a Christian uh, to to this community. So in light of that, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock. In light of their suffering, jump in. In light of their hurting, jump in and shepherd them. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you that you're in community with. Exercising oversight. Think about them. Care for the community. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And not for gain, not for shameful or personal gain, but, but eagerly. Do it with a heart of love. Not domineering those in your charge. Domineering over those in your charge. But be examples to the flock. Suffer well. Suffer among them. Be examples to them. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's our passage today, 5 and 6. Likewise, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For, quote in Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Talking about humility today, lucky me, um, I get to stand up here and talk to you about humility um, I don't know who that works out for. Um, be honest with you guys, um, I, I was not excited about putting this message together this week, being completely honest. Um, in fact, my heart was not into it. Um, I know that as, uh, sometimes as I, as I study, and you guys know this too, as, as learners of the word, as hearers of the word, and whatever you learn that week, God has a tendency to kind of bring that out and show you some specific things. And sometimes God does that in my life. And uh, I know that I'm a very prideful person. And uh, coming to a passage on humility, I just did not want to study this. Didn't. Procrastinated in my sermon even. Put it off to the last minute. In fact, you're going to see some passages I'm going to be talking about that not even in the notes, not even on the screen for you. Um, just being honest with you guys here this morning. I mean, God was faithful to show me um, my pride this week in a couple of uh, specific ways. And God's been kind of pounding the anvil of my proud heart uh, this week and preparing me for uh, this message. I'm going to give you two specific examples. One is, um, I've known this for a while, but it was really brought out this week for me personally that I have a quick temper issue. Um, I can kind of go from like, zero to 10 at the drop of a hat. And God was just like really brought that out specifically this week in, in my life. And um, just kind of like really convicted me about that. And um, just having some conversations about those things and really bringing that to God and confessing that and just begging him to give me the spirit, uh, the fruit of the spirit and patience and kindness, um, especially in my home. And so God was just really just like humbled me in my, my sin this week. Another thing was, this one's more funny, we can, we can kind of laugh at this one instead of cry, but um, I was in the office this week, right, around three different people, and it was discovered this, like, hidden kind of, like, paperwork, this old employee I had just lost, right, just completely, somebody who used to be on staff at our church, and just, like, 
real just negligent with some paperwork and it's really causes some headaches as we've been dealing with uh, some folks on some things. And I just went off on this guy because of his negligence, right? And his irresponsibility. Not two seconds later was it discovered I did the same exact thing to another couple in our church for what I just got done yelling at him. She gets it, she's laughing over there. That's, that's God saying, gotcha man, right? Watch your pride. I did this in the, in the presence of four different people, right? So God's been showing me my humility. Why do I share that? I think I share that because I don't stand up here as an expert in humility, dispensing tips on how to be humble. I stand up here as a prideful person, a broken person, and together we all need to come under this text and come under the word of God, right? Anybody with me prideful? Yeah? Ten of you, that's cool. It's great. It's your pride of why you didn't raise your hand. I told you, I don't raise my hand either when they ask me, like, hey, raise your hand. I'm like, I don't, even though it doesn't matter. Right? Hey, fill this paper out. No, I don't want to fill that out. Right? That's my pride. More of my pride. I think I say, like, I think we all come, right, this age-old pride issue, right, this, this thing that we can't seem to shake that rears its ugly head in a, a variety of different ways. So I come as a sinner, a fellow prideful person with other sinful, prideful people. We can confess that collectively as a family, and we can say, you know what, we hate this about ourselves. It causes us damage in our relationship with God and our relationship with others, We can confess that and say, God, let's glean from your word. Let's just submit ourselves to your word. Teach us. And because we're all prideful, may we all have ears to hear what the Spirit has for us today and showing us about um, our pride. So let's do that. Amen? Amen. So in this passage, Peter talks about the need for humility in three arenas, in three different places, all right? Three different, like, areas of relationship. Um, that Peter talks about our pride or needing humility in these three areas. The first one is humility towards leadership. The second one is humility towards one another. And lastly, humility towards God. So the first thing he says is he goes, hey, those who are young, be subject to the elders. Those of you among you who are the younger, subject yourselves to the elders. And I'm like, why is he got to pick on the young guys, right? Like clearly he all wants everybody in a community. Here's some God-ordained leaders in this community. They're elders, Right? They've been appointed so by the Spirit of God. It's been recognized in the context of a community. And, and God would have all of us to have a, a heart of humility and listening and being subject to them. He wants that for everybody. But here Peter says, those who are young. Why? Because the young bucks are just out of control, right? They tend to be the most prideful guys. They think they know everything. I know. Speaking as a young person, I know this. Right? Absolutely. You know, there's that one little, uh, there's that one little story where Jesus had uh, the woman who was caught in adultery, right? right, Standing right in front of him. The Pharisees kind of put Christ on, on the spot and said, uh, okay, Jesus, the law says we need to stone her, right? What, what say you do? And we know he drew a line in the sand, right? Wrote something, we don't know what that is. And they all had stones in hand ready to throw them. And he goes, he who among you is without sin cast the first stone. You know what John says in the text? Starting with those who are the oldest, they drop their stones. You know who are the last guys waiting, just seething? They couldn't wait to cast a stone and pin Jesus? The young guys. Why? Because there's just something about young guys. We're more prideful, right? We think we know everything. And so Peter kind of picks on the younger guys a little bit and says, those of you who are younger, subject yourselves to the elders. Now, think about this in context, all right? This is not just like some blanket, just kind of like, hey, here's some principles or something. Think about this in context, 
Remember the context. This is not a static leadership that Peter's talking about here. In verse 5, when he says, so I exhort the elders among you. It's not a static leadership. It's just not a bunch of guys who are leaders for the sake of being leaders or with a title. No, they're meant to lead in something. These elders are shepherding in the midst of a mission, and these people are suffering for the name of Jesus, right? And so in light of their suffering, chapter 4, Peter says, so listen, I'm going to need you elders to step up, to jump in, to encourage those who are suffering and those who are hurting. I need you to jump in and enter in relationally to encourage them, to shepherd them, to exercise oversight. They were called to shepherd those in their care. And it was getting real in their lives. It was getting hard. Suffering abounded here. Suffering for the name of Christ. And you can imagine, we've talked about this before, when suffering comes in, some are wanting to throw in the towel. Some are wanting to walk away from Christ. Is this even worth it? All this suffering, all this marginalization, all those people talking about me behind my back, is Jesus even worth it, right? Maybe some people were, were maybe even wanting to get revenge, And what's our natural inclination when someone hurts us or talks about us, right? Or mistreats us? What do we want to do? We want to do the same back to them. Like, can you put yourself in their shoes? They're being mistreated for the sake of the gospel. Some of them are probably wanting to take revenge into their own hands and not submit to the Lord Jesus and how he's telling them to suffer. Maybe for some it was, uh, maybe for some it was more of a gospel deficiency, Maybe they were interpreting their suffering, thinking that God somehow is getting, getting back at them for something they did wrong. Maybe they're thinking back to their forefathers in Israel, that when Israel was wayward and unrepentant, he would bring suffering into their life, right? Maybe they're forgetting the gospel, that God loves you unconditionally, and this suffering is to ref- refine you or change you, or maybe even exercise discipline in your lives. Maybe they think, man, God hates me. He's opposing me. Look at this. Look at what he's, look at, look at, look at this consequence I have in my life because of my sin. He's getting back. He's judging me. So the elders were called to jump in. And Jesus is worth it. Don't give up. Right? No, you're not going to want to take vengeance for yourself. You're going to want to suffer well like I'm suffering well. And these elders are squaring people up in their midst and their community and saying, no, this is this judgment. Jesus promised this. He said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. This is not God judging us. He loves us. Look at the cross, brother. We know this. The suffering has a purpose, has a reason, right? So in the midst of a mission, in the midst of some chaos, the elders are called to jump in and encourage the people. And now Peter says, be subject to them. Listen to them. Listen to their words. Listen to their counseling. Don't say, man, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm getting back. Like, you know what, man, I, I get what you're saying, but man, I just think God hates me right now. He's just getting back at me, right? You know, man, I'm thinking about walking away. I don't really care what you say. No, be subject to the elders. They're contending with you, shepherding you in the midst of some suffering. That's the context, right? The submission to leadership is not in the context of some country club or institution or static, stagnant organization. It's the very real people that Jesus called out of the world and set on mission in the world. And because they're on mission and they're loving people and they're proclaiming the name of Jesus, some sufferings come in. And so he needs the elders to step up and encourage and love them. That's what's going on here, right? So he tells them, be subject. Younger, be subject to the elders. Then he says, humility towards one another. Look at what Peter says here. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Now Peter throws a huge blanket statement on the whole family, the whole community here, right? Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, all of you. Elders to people, everybody to each other. Everybody's to put on humility toward each other and to walk in that. 
And finally, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that we have a posture of humility and set of pride towards God. So these are the three arenas. Now, quick note, notice how Peter doesn't talk about humility for humility's sake. Nobody's like, notice Peter's not like, hey, I want to talk to you about some individualistic piety, pious attitude you should have. Just generally be humble. He doesn't say that. He talks about their humility in the context of relationships. Right? He talks about their humility in the context of, right, like the relationships and the context that they find themselves in. He doesn't just talk about individualistic humility and pride. These topics are addressed relationally. This is not humility as a personal piety. This humility is in fellowship with God, fellowship with leaders, and fellowship as a church family. I just find that interesting. Peter's not just like, I want to take some time to just talk to you about humility. Just, just hey, be humble as a general attitude. No, it's be humble in these relationships that we have, right? We all find ourselves in a web of relationships, relationship with God, relationship with leaders, relationship with one another. He addresses a family. He addresses a community. This is not some personal holiness individual thing. This is a community thing. I just found that interesting. So all of us, we confess, at least the 10 of us, that we're prideful. Yes, we struggle with this, okay? Um, And um, so how, how do we go about this? How do we go about shedding our pride? How do we go about bearing fruit in humility? How do we go about... How do we go about how we go about this? A couple of clues here. And the first is this. It's in the phrase, clothe yourself. You see that right there, right? Clothe yourself, all of you, with what? Humility towards one another. Clothe yourself. The word literally means to do this, to tie on. To tie on. And it suggests tying on a servant's apron. It suggests taking an apron, a servant's apron, putting it on and tying it on. Something around your waist that servants would use. Put on your servant's apron and take on the mindset of a servant. That's why we get this word clothe, right? Because there's an article of clothing here that Peter's calling us to put on and to tie on. Now, when we talk about humility, when we talk about a servant's apron, does any one particular scene in the scriptures come to your mind? Yeah. For the people of Jesus and Peter in particular, he would remember John 13. It would be Jesus himself who would tie on a servant's apron, right? The night of his sufferings and do what for the disciples? Wash their feet. John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, knowing that his sufferings are just moments away, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He tied it on. And so this thing that Peter's telling us to tie on, Jesus tied this on, right? In and among these disciples. And he ultimately tied it on when he went to the cross. He tied on this humility, this servant mindset. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Imagine, right? What does pride do in the context of relationships? What does pride do? Right, pride says, pride, pride looks at other people and says, you're not, you're not worth my time. Pride looks at other people and sees maybe objects for our own personal gain, not objects to serve, not people to love, not people to jump in and care for them, but people who may rather serve us, right? Or will be involved and love you in your life if only I have a personal gain I can get from your relationship here, Right? And so it appears though I'm serving you, it appears though I'm in your life loving and caring for you, but I need something for you. 
right? That's what, pride has this idea of looking down on others. They're here to serve you. They're here for your own personal gain, or they're not worth your time. Or the only way that we get involved is I'm going to get something personally out of this. That's pride in relationships. Okay, that's pride. You're not worth my time. What happens when we put an apron on? What happens when we go grab the proverbial servant's apron and we tie it around our waist? Now how do we view people? Fellow image bearers created by God, for God, right? Fellow objects of God's mercy, part of a family that I've been brought into. When I take the mindset of a servant and I tie on an apron and my mind is brought to Christ who tied an apron on for me and served me in the cross, what does that do to my heart towards others? What does that do with my posture toward other people? In Christ, I have a mind to be a servant. In Christ, I have a mind to tie an apron on and to view my relationships as one who is supposed to serve. This is what Peter is saying. Clothe yourselves, tie on the apron of humility towards one another, right? God has called us to live a life of love towards God and love towards others. What are the greatest two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love others as yourself, right? Love others like a servant. He's called us to live a life towards God and toward others. The proud person sets themselves against God and sets themselves against others. They don't jump in with a servant's apron on to serve and to love and see themselves as a, a, a uniquely equal part of a family. They see themselves as better than. Their pride sets them apart from the family. The pride separates them from the family. They're not in and among. They're separate and distinct and better than, right? But God's called us to love each other. Now, so that's the first clue. That's the first kind of like, okay, what's an on-ramp here to humility, right? This idea of tying on a servant's apron or the identity of a servant and our mind is brought to Christ. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Our eyes are brought to Christ. Another one is this, a bit of a warning and a promise in this, in this quote from Proverbs 3, right? So if pride sets ourselves against God and sets ourselves against others, in a certain sense, God sets himself against the proud, right? What does it say? For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Another motivating factor in pursuing humility is this. If you're in Christ, I'm just going to assume this, that you want to be in a relationship with God, amen? That you want to be loved by him and known by him and you want to know him. As much of a grind as that is daily and personally, that we want to be there. We don't want to hear the words that God opposes us in any way or doesn't accept us or love us or welcome us at all. And so we want to be in a relationship with him, Right? We want to be in relationship, not running from him. When we're prideful towards God, when we're prideful towards leaders, when we're prideful towards others, we are opposing them, and in a certain sense, God's opposing us. For God opposes the proud. Now, I thought about this because we're always talking about how we're secure in Christ and we're secure in his grace, right? And so I don't want to, I don't want to present Proverbs 3 to you as if this is like we're falling in and out of salvation with our pride and humility, we're falling away from grace or we're losing favor with God thing here. But in our pride, what we're doing is we're placing ourselves at odds with God. And we're placing ourselves at odds with others. And we're rejecting fellowship with both. Because we're refusing to enter in. In our pride, we will no doubt experience the discipline of God, right? We're not enjoying the freedom of this fellowship. 
in humility towards God and, and coming humbly under him. We're not experiencing the joy of a fellowship with others when we view them as people that serve us. If we see them as anything other than family to be served, right? And in our pride, we will experience the consequences of those things, right? Have you ever, have you ever experienced the consequences of pride in a relationship? As you've been prideful to that person, or maybe you've experienced someone being prideful to you and just rejecting you, there's consequences there. That kind of creates a rift that doesn't create unity and reconciliation. It creates other things, distance, unreconciliation, anger, hatred, unforgiveness, all those things. In our pride, we will experience the discipline of God as he deals with us there. He opposes this pride in us. He opposes it. And he's going to want to deal with it. We talked, what was it, like three weeks back, we talked about the discipline of the Lord. He loves us enough to not let us stay there. He loves us enough to pull us out of this unforgiveness and these bitter relationships. To contend with our hearts and, and, and exercise his discipline to soften our hearts so that we can walk in the family that we've been brought into. And to say that we love God but then don't love our brothers, First John told us what? You're a liar. Your love for God has to extend itself relationally to others. In our pride, we will experience the discipline of God and the consequences of our pride. But in our humility, we will experience the grace of his presence, right? And the fruit of relationships. The grace of his presence and the fruit of relationship with him and with others. This is what Proverbs is getting at. It's not this like falling in and out of salvation kind of a thing. Some might, be, might take it there. So first two things, clothe yourselves, all of you. Put a servant's apron on, right? And then here's this warning. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to be experiencing the freedom and joy of his grace. Not the love of God in the form of discipline, which is going to happen when he opposes my pride and contends with me. And so how else can we stoke this humility? Let's go back to the servant's apron thing. When, we say, when he says, tie it on or clothe yourself with it, our mind immediately goes to Jesus, which is where all of this comes from, Jesus. So how do we, how, how do we stoke humility and shed pride? Humility is rooted in Christ. Humility is rooted in Christ. We always talk about this. Whenever we talk about how God's called us to something in the Christian life, we always say, listen, we need to look to Christ, who's our model, our motivation, and he's our means. He's our model, he's our motivation, and our means. He's our model. He, he was an example in this. He showed us this, all right? So Christ the example, Christus exemplar. And we look to him and he's our example. But it's not just that he's our example, he's our savior, right? He, he didn't just come to model a way of life and then go live it out and then God will love you and save you. No, he saved us in Christ. But he's our model, but as we look at him, something, has to, something begins to happen. As we remember his cross, as we remember how he was a servant, as we remember all these things, God begins to stoke in our hearts the motivation to live it out. As we look beyond ourselves to him, right? And so there's something that happens in the heart as we look to Jesus in these things. And this is what we're going to do here for this humility pride thing. But then there's one more thing. He's our means by which we live it out. Here's what I mean by that. We've talked about this here, right? I'll, I'll share it to you in, in, in the context of a story. I was talking to a husband this week, struggling in his marriage, some things that I'm similarly struggling with. He's looking at me and saying, you know what, I need to try. I need to try to work on it. I need to try. Trying hard to work and change, right? Like, that's certainly admirable. 
I go, but you know, I've said those same words. I go, hey man, how about this? Try dying instead of trying. Try dying. You know what trying implies? Trying implies I have the resources in and of myself to change myself. Jesus was pretty clear in the scriptures that we don't. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Only as the, the branch and the vine are connected. Only as long as you abide in me, you bear fruit, right? The only reason I bear fruit in my life is the very spirit of Jesus who indwells me, who's bearing that fruit. And as I die to the fact that I can't get my stuff together and I cast myself in humility on the grace of God and beg the spirit to produce fruit in my life. Galatians 5 says, patience, kindness, peace, these things are the fruit of who? Our trying hard? No, it's the fruit of the spirit. So Jesus is the model, he's the motivation, but he's also the means. Meaning this, we need to cast ourselves onto him and beg him to give us a heart to do the things he's called us to do. We need to cast ourselves onto the spirit of God and pray that the spirit would bear fruit in our lives. And when it comes, we walk in it. And we repent and we confess and all those things and our eyes are drawn outside of ourselves to Christ, who's our model and motivation and means. That's what I mean. I said, bro, try dying. Try dying to the fact that this is who you are and God hates it and he died for you in this. Confess your sins humbly. Say, Jesus, I need your grace. And then die to the fact that you can ever muster up enough spiritual guts to produce what God's calling you to do only in and through and by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, the Spirit of Jesus. And you cast yourself there, right? It's the difference between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. When we try hard to change and to muster up humility, that's called walking in the flesh. Walking in the spirit is saying, broken, jacked up. I need to cast myself on your mercy and grace. God, give me the heart that you require in this situation so I can obey you from there. Okay, I think I have time to do this. But Christ is our example of this, right? It's rooted in Christ, Philippians 2. Mike just read this earlier. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the spirit, that's what we're talking about here, participating in the spirit, the life of the spirit, the fruit that he gives, like the life that's there to live the Christian life out, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, right? So think like this, right? Tie on servant's apron. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There's conceit, that's pride. Don't do anything from pride, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. That's the phrase right there. Count others significant, more significant than yourselves. What does pride do? I'm more significant than you. What does humility do? You're more significant than me. I'm called to be a servant in this family. All right, so this is what Paul's talking about now. Now look at what he does. He calls them to be humble towards one another. How does he do it? Like, where's the, where's the strength to do this come from? Paul models this kind of counseling for us here. Have this mind among yourselves. Look to other people's interests. Don't count yourself as more significant. Look not only to your own interests, but the, inter- others, uh, the interests of others as well. And have this mind among yourselves. Now he draws a direct line to Christ. He takes our eyes and puts them solely on Christ and says this. 
though he was in the form of God, though he existed in essence as God, he was God in eternity past. He was in the form, essence of God, meaning this, literally he was God. He did, not equal, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God for the son, right, it wasn't something he needed to grasp for. He already had it. That's what Paul's saying. He didn't need to grasp or work or try hard to attain it. He already was equal with God. But this eternal God did what? Emptied himself. Poured himself out. And all the rights that he had as God coming to this earth, he put them on a shelf. He hid his glory. And he took all the, the independent use that he had for all of his attributes and put them on the shelf. And what did he do? He clung wholly and solely to the spirit of God while he was here. He didn't do anything on his own strength, but relied on the spirit of God. What did he do? By taking the form of a servant. Him who was in the form of God took the form of a servant. Literally tied on the servant's apron being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know how shameful a cross is? Much more shameful than the mistreatment that these people are enduring. Much more humbling. And because of that humility, God exalted him. Now remember this, see how this works here. Humbling, then exaltation. Just keep that in mind for our last verse. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Humility is rooted in Christ who's our model, he's our motivation and he's also our means which is the next thing. Humility is rooted in grace. You know what grace does? It destroys pride. Destroys it. Come on, you guys will know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should what? You know how all of us are in this family? Some of you are maybe kicking the tires of Christianity. Right? Is this for me? This is not a life of knowledge, law, and performance. It's a life of faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And you enter into this family by grace, not by works and not by trying really, really hard to make God love you. He sends his son to die to bring you in and reconcile you. All of us have been brought in this family by grace. There's no boasting here. None of us can say, check me out. This is how I'm at this table. None of us earned our seat here. Grace smashes pride across the board. And this is why it's so heinous for pride to sneak into a Christian marriage or a Christian relationship or a Christian church. Because we've forgotten the thing that entered us in here which is grace, shatters pride, just shatters it. Everything we have has been given to us. Everything that we have that we can even boast in has been given to us by God's grace. What does Paul say? May I never boast except by what? The cross of who? Christ. That's my only courage. That's my only thing worth standing on and saying, check this out. It's Christ. Christ for me on the cross. Christ in me by his spirit. Ed Clowney on this passage says this, the humility of those who serve Christ is not merely the absence of pride or the awareness of limitations. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. Christian humility is this, I realize I need God's grace. That's what he's saying. Christian humility is like, I, the only thing I got going on for me is I have a God who exists, who loves me in Jesus and accepts me fully and finally and perfectly. 
That's the only thing I got going on in this life. And until you get to that point, right? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you different than anyone else? What sets you apart? Why would you have any reason to boast? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you haven't? Why is there any boasting? There's no boasting. Jesus died in our place for our sin. While we were lost over on the side in darkness and unbelief, we contributed nothing to this. Oh, let me take that back. The only thing we contributed to this is sin and death. The only thing I've literally brought to the table in my salvation is my sin and my death. Jesus brings everything else and he accomplished everything else. Knowing that and anchoring your heart to that, how can pride exist? It can't. And the reason why pride exists is because we shift away from God's grace often in our lives. Amen? Spiritual amnesia, shift away from the gospel. We begin thinking that somehow we're awesome or we're great or we're accomplishing these things on our own or whatever. And we start to look down our nose at people and see people as people to serve us or not worth our time, Right? God and his ways were like, yeah, no thanks, God, I think I got this, right? We start to just exude this pride in our, all of our relationships. Humility springs from total dependence on the grace of God. Grace destroys pride. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten: by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not by hard work, right, creativity, ingenuity, my smarts, my spiritual prowess, nothing like that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God saves us by faith, not by works. Jesus became sin for sinners, weak for the weak, lost for losers, and died for those of us who were dead in our sin. No boasting, no gloating, and no pride at the foot of the cross. Just humble gratitude, thankfulness. When we anchor our hearts to Christ, who tied a servant's apron on for us in the cross, and we anchor our hearts to grace, here's where humility begins to bear fruit in our lives. Last one, humility is rooted in the sober view of self, right? Last passage here, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Note that true humility is rooted and is realized and uh, when we realize the, the truth of who we are in light of who he is. He has a mighty hand and I don't. He's strong and I'm not. He's wise and I'm not. He's sovereign and I'm not. He's good and I'm not. He's in control, I'm not. He's holy, I'm not. He sees the big picture, I don't. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We see ourselves soberly when we see ourselves as God sees us, pride is a serious overestimation as to who we are. Pride is seriously and grossly overestimating who we are in this world. And God's perspective of us is the right and sober view. What God says about us is the truth. Let me ask you this, what has God said about us? What is God's declaration as to who, what our status is and who we are? You know what God's declaration of us is? The cross. Meaning this. Here's who I think you are. I think you need a cross. 
I don't think you need self-help, self-improvement, an attaboy, a pat on the back, right? A little foot to the backside to get you going. You know what you need? You need me to leave heaven, become flesh, die, and rise again. That's what you need. Now, some are like, well, that's discouraging. Thanks, God. You know, like, now where's our courage, though? Where's, Where's the courage, where's the hope, and where's the joy in the Christian life? That in one breath, God speaks a declaration of our brokenness and that we need a Savior. And in that same declaration, he declares and shows us how much he loves us. So when the cross says, here's what I think about you. You need a savior. Then he says this, here's what I think about you. I love you and I'm sending you my son. The gospel has this unique ability to create this mixture of humility and confidence. And nothing else can do this. Religion leaves you this way. If you think you're saved by works, if you think, you're, if you think that at the end of the day, right, you're gonna hope to have more good than bad and God's gonna let you in accordingly. You know what you're gonna do? You're gonna find yourself in two extremes, the height of pride and the depths of depression. When you're good, right? Cloud nine, baby, I'm up here. Prideful, I'm gonna look down my nose at everybody else. When I'm down, I'm failing, right? Depths of depression. You know what the gospel says? I love you and die for you and accept you and justify and forgive you in the face of your sin. You didn't do anything to contribute to this. I save you by my grace, but yet I love you. Only the gospel can produce a unique blend of humility and confidence. I'm broken by the fact that I'm broken, the truth of who I am, right? It creates a humility in me to just see my failure lived out in my life. But I'm confident because God's not abandoned me. He's not walked away from me like I've walked away from him. In fact, his face is toward me and he sent his son so he might welcome me, know me, love me, and provide for me. You get it? It's the gospel, man. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. He's the key to this whole thing. Sober view is the biblical view, right? The cross was proof of our weakness, yet proof of his love. Again, remember the context. Humility towards God and Peter's thought is to listen to God and how he's telling you how to view your suffering and how to respond in light of your suffering. Think about it in context. What would be the prideful thing here? What would be the not submitting yourself under the mighty hand of God? Saying, you know what? No, I'm gonna get revenge. I'm gonna walk away. I'm gonna complain about my suffering. Not suffering like God's telling you to suffer. Suffer well, be an example. God's showing his light in this world and saving people by your suffering well, right? Christ is worth it. Hope, he's coming, right? Stick with it, suffer well. Not listening to that. Refusing to take God's view on your suffering and what he's calling you to do in the midst of your suffering is you doing what Adam and Eve did. No, thanks God, I think we'll eat of this fruit of this tree. I really like this life you've laid out for me and these boundaries you set up as our king. I think I'm just gonna be the king of my own life. I'm just gonna go at life how I deem deem the best, right? When we say no thanks, God, that's what we're doing. We're not humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I think Peter uses the phrase mighty hand of God to allude to God's ability to, to, to sustain them and to rescue them and bring justice and an end to what they're experiencing. 
their hands mighty. Maybe some of them were, maybe some of them were tempted to think that God's just absent or he's not strong enough to change the circumstances or whatever. And Peter says, no, God's hands mighty. Suffer well and submit to him and at the proper time, he'll what? Exalt you at the proper time and God's good timing, which has got Peter's final thought. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Here's what's crazy. Peter wants us to humble ourselves under God to view ourselves soberly as broken, we're humble, to come under him, and at the proper time, he'll exalt us. You know what pride does? Pride postures as if we're already exalted. Pride postures as if there's no weakness in us at all. Pride postures as if we're already exalted and already strong. And Peter brings this very counterintuitive way to being lifted up, to being exalted. In a counterintuitive, backwards way, the path to being exalted or lifted up, not like we're glorified like how God has glory, but exalted like come out from underneath your suffering, be exalted, be encouraged, be lifted up. In a counterintuitive way, the path to being exalted and lifted up is to be weak and dependent upon God, humble before God. Now that's the opposite of the way we think and work. That's the opposite of our gut reaction. Right? When we're low and humble, God shows us grace and lifts us up. And when we come to him with this kind of heart and this kind of posture, this kind of humility, we're honest with him in prayer and this humility plays itself out in a relationship. He lifts us up and he exalts us. He reminds us of his strength. He reminds us of his gospel promises. He reminds us that he's coming for us again. He reminds us of the hope of who he is, right? He reminds us of what, he's, what, what he is doing in our lives through our suffering. As we just submit to all those truths, he encourages our hearts, he exalts us, and he lifts us up. Instead of being crushed, and literally I mean crushed, by our own pride and constant posturing and hard-heartedness that it requires. If you want to be prideful, that is the constant posturing that you're okay, that you're strong, that you're good, that you got this, and the hard-heartedness it requires. Pride requires posturing, acting as if you're not broken, humble, and weak, acting as if you're strong, putting on the charade of strength, all right? And the constant hard-heartedness towards God and towards others. That's what pride requires. For you to constantly pretend and harden your heart. You know what that ends in? You know, that, you know what that treadmill ends in? The pride treadmill ends in death. And by God's grace, he loves us enough to bring us from that, contend with our hearts, right? So instead of being crushed by our own pride and constant posturing, God wants us to humble ourselves, come to him, and there he'll lift us up and exalt us. Instead of being crushed by the weight of life's cares and concerns, God wants us to live dependent on him so we can experience the joy and the freedom of a relationship with him when we're not running from him in pride, but humbly submitting to him the joy of that experience and that life with him. And when we're not, not showing pride to our brothers and sisters, the joy of the fellowship we have with the family of God. You know what the very next verse is in 1 Peter 5? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's where this humility thing's played out. When we take our anxieties, right, and we see, man, my shoulders are not strong enough to carry this. I'm weak. I need you. And we bring all of our anxieties to him. 
and throw them on his shoulders. Really quick, just in closing, just remember the context. Remember they're suffering as Christians. They are anything but exalted now. They're humble. They're being made low. People are like hurting them, saying things about them, right? They're, they're ruining business deals for them. You know, it was hard to just even be in the marketplace as a Christian. They would shut you out, not deal with you, tell people don't buy from that guy, right? I mean, these kinds of things. Are kicked out of families, those kinds of things. They're anything but exalted right now. They're being made low. They're oppressed and they're marginalized. You know, it's humbling to be mistreated. Am I right? It's humbling to be talked about, made fun of. Peter's talked a lot about their, just the, the sins of the tongues of people who are mistreating us. Maybe some of you need to go back to high school to remember what it's like to be picked on or bullied, right? It's humbling. It's very humbling. Maybe they were responding to this in prideful ways. Instead of accepting their suffering, they wanted to run from it, fight back, complain. Either one of those would be anything but humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And Peter's telling them, and Peter's telling them in God's good timing, he will exalt you, he will lift you up. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Don't try and fix this with your own hands. Take revenge with your own hands or even complain and shake your hand at God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under your elders who are trying to shepherd you. They're trying to care for you in this. Speak truth to your heart. Encourage you in your suffering. Listen to them. Listening and obeying elders in the context of them trying to shepherd you and speak truth into your life, that's the context. Listen to them in this time of suffering. They're trying to remind you of God's truth in the situation and God's heart towards the world. Submit yourself to your family who's suffering too. You need them and they need you. That's the context, right? And a good shepherd, I would imagine, as our hearts are angry toward a world who doesn't know Jesus and they're mistreating us, I would say a natural reaction is to not love them in return. It's to not have the heart of Jesus for them to not want them to come to experience grace and forgiveness. I think one of the things that a good elder and a shepherd would do is, hey man, I get that they're mistreating you and they're making fun of your God. They're mocking you. We need together, we need to go to God. We need to both subject ourselves under the mighty hand of God and go and ask Jesus to give us, give us his heart for these people because right now I don't feel like loving them. I don't feel like praying for them. I feel like beating them down is what I feel like, right? <laughs> I feel like getting back. And a good elder would say, no, let's love the world together. Let's be on mission together. I think that's how they would have taken that passage in light of the context. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. And, and we just confess as a family that we're just broken with this. We are prideful. We forget your grace. We tend to use people instead of care for them. Uh, we look down our noses at people. We see ourselves as better than others. Um, we, we, we don't see ourselves as servants. Uh, people are inconvenienced to us. Um, we, we often don't humble ourselves under your mighty hand. We run from you. We'd rather live life on our own terms rather than uh, your loving kingdom ways. Uh, God, we're just a prideful people. And we just confess that. 
we confess that. And on the other end of our confession and our humbling, we, we see that you, you, you show us grace, you show us forgiveness, you welcome us back again. And I pray that our hearts would be anchored to your grace so that your grace and your son and the spirit of your son would produce in us the heart that's needed to live all that Peter's calling us to do here, that we would live that out. Grant us that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.